Well, today is Ash Wednesday, 2024, and I'm uh, back to podcasting and preaching again. I apologize for my hiatus, about three weeks uh, gap here. I was sick back in the another flare-up of diverticulitis, which is uh, no fun. Uh, Part of the fun of getting older, I suppose, and then uh, a lot of things in uh, a lot of things in uh, balls in the air, a lot of things uh, happening, uh, uh, trying to nail down exactly what uh, my next call looks like. I had uh, thought perhaps I would return to some secular work and um, had an interesting lead and opportunity to to pursue. And then um, you know, my wife says to me one night, she says. I- I, you're supposed to be a minister, and uh, I've got, uh, of course the scales dropped off my eyes at that point. I'm like, of course, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I went into this, uh, followed this call for for so long and for so many years. So um, I'm hopeful that I will have something to tell you soon about that. Very exciting. But I did want to share a few words with you about Ash Wednesday, and I wanted to talk to you about uh, impressions and and who we're impressed by. Who are you impressed by, and the kinds of people that you that you take notice of? Um, are you impressed by people you think are holy and good? Uh, are you impressed by people who think they're morally superior? Maybe not morally superior, maybe that's not the best word, but you look at them and you somehow think they're better than you are. Well, I know we all do this, and I think it could be for two reasons. The first is that they they are genuinely better than we are in some way. Um, that's not that's not false. That's certainly true. God distributes talents and abilities uh, not quite equally, does he, uh, throughout the human the human species, and so we certainly can look at someone else and see that he is or she is uh, better, possesses attributes or qualities uh, and even morals that uh, we find it hard uh, or don't simply simply don't have. The second reason that we might find uh, someone else better than us is because they're being hypocrites. They're showing off. They want us to think that of them. In either case, though, whether it's in the case that they are actually better or whether they're being hypocrites and showing off, we are left with a sense of not measuring up, right? Um, and that sense of not measuring up is something that that we should pay attention to because it's probably true and ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Maybe these other people that we look up to, maybe they don't lie or cheat or steal the way we do. Maybe maybe they haven't slept with as many people. Maybe they go to church on Sunday. Maybe they drink less and get up earlier. Maybe their children have turned out better than ours. These are all the standards by which we judge and judge others, aren't they? Uh, go ahead and take a minute now and think about the ways in which you judge others. But, but notice how we've inverted things, haven't we? Uh, because now instead of thinking that other people are better than us, we're now trying to figure out ways in which we judge them and are better than they are. Uh, and I think that's something that usually happens when we're caught short by someone else's goodness. We find ways to tear them down and to build ourselves up. We find ways to tear them down and build ourselves up. And there's a word for this, and it's called self-justification. Self-justification. Now, the Bible does not teach self-justification. The Bible is not a self-help book or any other kind of selfish book written to appeal to a self-seeking or self-serving or self-justifying people. Actually, it is written to to those kinds of people exactly, and it's it's written to, to convict us of those selfish behaviors. The Bible is written uh, to those of us, all of us, who don't feel like we measure up to others. And the Bible gives us the only escape plan from the rat race to the bottom that ensues. Today's readings for Ash Wednesday are talking about repentance. Repentance means to turn around, to reverse course, to put the brakes on that race to the bottom. 
And the readings, and I'm reading today from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 17, and Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 21. The readings today say that repentance is more than a transaction. Repentance is more than a reconciling of accounts. Both the prophet Joel and later Jesus of Nazareth teach us that repentance must be done with eternity in mind. With eternity in mind. Joel is likely speaking to the exiled Jewish community community after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC and their subsequent deportation to Babylon. And you might be thinking, what's the point, Joel? What's the point of repenting? They, these, these people, these Jews already experienced their judgment. It had already happened. The worst, the worst had happened. They'd lost their city. They'd, their temple was destroyed. They were scattered. They were carried off in exile. Why repent? Maybe you're asking yourself that right now. Maybe the accumulation of your own sins has compounded such to the point where you were at the end of your rope or you really think there's no way out of this. There was a whole series about a decade ago called Breaking Bad that was all about this. The main character made one bad decision, which cascaded into an entire life that he really couldn't escape from. But here's the good news, and it's in the call to repentance. The call to repentance means there is still time to turn around. It means that we haven't quite hit bottom yet. And so it is with Ash Wednesday. The traditional service for this day is called, and there's a long title for this. They used to to like to use long titles back in the 16th century. But the traditional service for this day in the Book of Common Prayer is called a combination, or, I like the second title they always give, right? A combination, or denouncing of God's anger and judgment against sinners. (laughs) You know, you think, so what a dreadful name for a service, right? I mean, why would I go? Why would I go? Go hear myself denounced? I mean, the Communist Party will do that, right? Sort of the struggle sessions of Mao. I think I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something to it here. Maybe there. Maybe we do like to be denounced. Maybe there's sort of a ritualistic uh, shaming that we all enjoy on some secret level, right? Okay, but I don't know. For some reason, you put it in the church, and everybody says, "Oh, that's the church just making us try to feel bad or whatever." That's at least I think what the modern liturgists have said, and it's the reason this service hasn't shown up. I think in any American prayer book. Uh, it's still in the Church of England prayer book, but I like it. I find it hopeful, frankly. I find that I find I find the title of this service a denouncing a denouncing of God's anger and judgment against sinners. I find it hopeful. I take courage. I take courage from a God who gets angry. I, I do. I like. I, I my God gets angry. Jehovah, the Lord God, gets angry, and He gets angry because He cares. Right? He cares enough about me to denounce me for the sinner that I am. And you know what? I would rather be denounced by a righteous God than by a whole gaggle of liars and hypocrites. And isn't that what we face most days? The people who denounce us don't do it out of love, right? They do it out of manipulation and guilt. But God denounces us out of his own righteous anger, which is rooted in his love. Joel, the prophet Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Now there's no dismissing of the children for Sunday school here in this assembly. And if the people are too old and weak to come, then the young and strong had better go and get them and carry them to the assembly. Nursing is no excuse for not repenting. Everyone needs to show up for this communal act of regret. You know, and by the way, I think children belong in church. By all means, if they are disruptive, take them out. But they are part of Jehovah's assembly. They belong in the pews. A trumpet is a loud, 
brash instrument. It is used to sound the alarm, which is Joel's meaning here, to sound the alarm of judgment. But a trumpet is also used to herald good and joyful news. It's time to gather the assembly to repent because there is still a chance, right? Repentance is good news. The call, I should say, the call to repentance. If you hear the call to repentance, that's a call to rejoice. That's a call for good news. That's a call to tell you that there's still time, that it's not too late. There is still hope. There is still something you can do. We can repent. We can return to the Lord with all our hearts. Now, for Joel's people that he was preaching to, the Jews of Babylon, at least some of them, some of those exiles, restoration did occur. The prophecies came to pass, and some of the exiled Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and their nation. But by the time Jesus came, men's hearts had once again grown cold. They had drifted away from God. A professional religious class took over the communal and individual business of repenting. People began to think, why get down on my knees and before God, or especially before the people I've, I've wronged and beg for mercy when I could pay a Pharisee or a priest to do it, right? Jesus here doesn't even bother to call these Pharisees and priests and scribes by their offices. He just calls them hypocrites. I'm reading now from Matthew, he says, When you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Dismal and hypocritical. That's both the look and the character of any priest who ever peddled religion or sold forgiveness. And what was his reward? His reward was that he got, that he got to look down on you. After all, you let him. You thought for a moment that he was better than you. For a brief moment, you thought he had something on you, something you did not have, something you could not obtain on your own. He made you think you needed him to get right with God, and that made you resent him, even if you still thought you needed him. And this, this, friends, this is the problem with all, all of churchianity. This is the problem with all of organized religion, right? No matter how good or pure the motives are, the intents going in, Uh, You split off from one corrupt denomination, you start another denomination. The seeds of that wickedness, the seeds of that vainglory, they carry, they're blown with the wind. They're part part of the human DNA, right? And Jesus comes to tell us that's not true. You don't have to be manipulated by these guilt mongers who make you think that they're better than you are. Because religion isn't supposed to be some kind of public display of piety. It's not some parade with symbols and drums and statues and pictures and all kinds of hysterics. There's no wailing and putting on sackcloth and wearing ashes. This is what the hypocrites do. Now, if the churches all decide they want to go and do this too, well, well, then what message are they sending? They're saying you can walk down the street with murder in your heart and lust in your loins, but if you've got the ashes on your forehead, then it will all be just fine. God's bound to forgive you. After all, you've made a big show of repentance, haven't you? You put the Almighty in your debt. He owes you now. Jesus says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by men, but by your Father who is in... Sorry, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Why do we take the plain meaning of these words and do the exact opposite? Christians are expected to fast. Jesus' words are when you fast, not if you fast. If you want to know how to fast, that's that's another topic. There's no prescribed biblical way to fast. Uh, 
um, you, you, you know, look it up. There, the different churches have different rules. Different communities have different rules. You know, a good idea is that if you're over the age of eight and below the age of fifty-nine, then then you then you're then you might try to fast. Uh, so basically, the young and the old are exempted. Uh, limit yourself to one meal during the course of a day. Uh, abstain from meat, uh, alcohol, sugar sweets, those kinds of things. If that's, if that's what you want to do, if you want to fast today, that, that might be one way to go about doing it. But Jesus says, when you're fast, don't make a show of it. When you fast, you're supposed to look the better for it. And, you know, frankly, if you lose some weight, you might look a little better, right? So there's some benefit here to it, but that's not what he's saying. Ash Wednesday is, he, what he's saying here is Ash Wednesday, a fast day like today is, is, you get, is the day you go out and you get a haircut and you shave. You look your best. You put on good clothes. You look happy and excited. You don't look, you don't look down and depressed. Why? Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian believer, you are fasting with eternity in mind. When a believer fasts, he's doing it with eternity in mind. He's joyful because he's heard the judgment trumpet sound and he knows that the day of Jehovah is here. He's excited to see God's judgment on on his enemies, which are the believer's enemies too, right? I mean, God has enemies. And we, as the people of God, that that means that God's enemies are our enemies too. We're oppressed by them. We long to see them overturned. And so the day of fasting, the day of the trumpet sound, the day of the Lord is a day of excitement for us because the long night of wrong is finally coming to an end and the day of righteousness is dawning. That's why our faces shine. Our faces glow as we walk down the street, as we walk past the abortion clinic and the brothel and the smut peddler and we see that they've all been shuttered and put out of business. We read the morning paper and it tells the truth for once. We walk by the courthouse and we see the corrupt judges being led away to prison along with the thieves and the murderers they let off, while the falsely imprisoned and and prisoners of conscience are set free and reunited with their families. This is happening right now, folks, in this country. We've got prisoners of conscience in jail. The words of David are are, are on our lips. The words of David are on our lips as we walk into a church which is full and bright and not empty and dark and dank. And we sing the Psalms, we sing the words of Psalm 94, verse 15. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. See, David and the psalmist, David the psalmist and the Old Testament understood what it was like to see justice perverted, to see the wicked sit on the throne. And they looked for the day when that would be turned, when that would be put right, when it would be current world order would be turned upside down and those who are belong to God the righteous the meek would be put back in their rightful places and have the restoration of all that's been stolen to them by the wicked stolen from them by the wicked this is why a Christian believer fasts this is the day he looks forward to the cause of our Lenten joy is found in this eternal day of the Lord our faces shine because even now the beams of that eternal dawn are breaking upon us Now, repentance must be done with eternity in mind. There's a wrong way to repent. The wrong way is to beg for mercy as if God were some human potentate or bully who likes to watch us grovel, sadly. Sadly, I think that's the way a lot of, that's the caricature that the anti-Christians, anti-God people like to put out there about God. 
this mean old man who makes you beg and grovel, who's a bully. That's not, that's not why, that's not how you fast. If that's the way God was, if that's the way that, that God was, then that's the way we would need to repent. Now think about in your life, who are you bending the knee to? Who are you groveling in front of? Your boss, your employer, your priest, your, your, your senator, your president, you know, who is it? Who are you? Who, who's making you feel like you're being bullied? Okay, that and, and what are you doing? What kind of fasts and, and fake repentance are you are you participating in to placate or ex, 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 placate these bullies? That's not that's not how God wants you to fast. The wrong way to fast is to also another way to to, uh, to fast incorrectly is to is to bargain with God. All of us have done this at one point or another, right? All of us have said, I promise God, I promise I'll stop doing or I'll never do such and such again. I'll never look at that again. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never. We, you know, you begin your prayers with I'll never, you're bargaining, right? And and then, because the other side of that is, God, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll be better. I'll repent. I'll do what you want me to do if you will only let such and such happen, Right? And you saw David do this after he had committed fornication and adultery with Bathsheba and their, and, and their son was, was, was under judgment and, and dying uh, as a punishment for that sin. And David, David, David begs for his son's life, but he also has enough sense by this point. He's repented enough to know that God's will be done and that God is just, but he's not bargaining. He's not bargaining at that point. When a believing Christian, rep- Christian repents, he's returning to God. He is redirecting his emotion and his will and his whole being towards eternity. That's what it means to turn our hearts towards something, to direct our emotion, wills, and our whole being, our intellect, towards God. That's what repentance is. And this is what Jesus means when he says, Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consume, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Heaven here is meant to be in contrast to earth. It means I mean, it doesn't mean anything more than the sky above, right? Uh, literally in Greek. In other words, what Jesus is saying is put, put your heaven, put your treasures out of reach, right? Put them where somebody can't get them or find them. But it, the context is clear. The context is clear that Jesus is also speaking figuratively of eternity. Now, eternity is not infinite time. Time is just another one of God's creations. Eternity is an attribute of God himself. He is eternal. He's the eternal one, the eternal person, three persons. To put our treasure in heaven is to lay up God in our hearts. But we don't do this through an elaborate show of religion or personal piety. We don't say to God, I fasted, now you owe me forgiveness. In fact, we don't do anything to lay up God in our hearts, as if by some priestcraft we could conjure him or summon him there. Instead, we have to understand that all the promises of God's steadfast love, his mercy and his kindness, they're not promises that he made to us. We're not the beneficiary. We're not, God's promises are not directed to you and me individually as sinners. Now, it may be hard to accept at first. You think, well, God loves me, right? I'm saved. I'm born again. I know that God loves me. Yes, he loves you through his son, Jesus Christ. He sees you through his son, Jesus Christ. The righteousness that you now have is imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ. It's not, it's, it, I won't say it's borrowed righteousness. It's, it's yours now. It's imputed. It's part of your new nature, your regenerated, born-again nature. Uh, the very principle of sin in you has been obliterated and replaced with the principle of righteousness, but it's an alien righteousness. It does not come from you. You didn't generate it on your own. You, you, you didn't fast for the 110th time and all of a sudden you became righteous. No, it's, it's Christ's righteousness in you. 
And it is to his son, Jesus Christ, that all of God's promises were made. And it is to his son, Jesus Christ, that all of God's promises are fulfilled. This is what Paul said and meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, when he wrote, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why we utter the amen through him to the glory of God. The difference between you and, and me and Jesus is that in the hour of trial and temptation, our father Adam failed in the garden. But when Christ was in another garden, many, many centuries later, the Garden of Gethsemane, in his moment of trial and temptation, he did not fail. Christ did ask for the cup of, his, cup of his suffering to pass from him. But then he said, not my will, but thine, O Father, be done. So we fast today. We might even wear ashes today. Not to call down God's forgiveness in the hope that he will spare us. But to know that we wear the righteous robes of Christ Jesus. We fast today, we celebrate today, knowing that when we set our hearts on Christ, when we, are, when we are united to him in our amen, then we know that he is ours and we are his. We know that no sin or evil can ever separate us from his steadfast love. We know that God's promised day of judgment and vengeance has finally dawned. We know that our vindication is near. This is why we fast. We know that we will be restored. Amen. Some questions here for reflection and discussion. First question, number one, tearing down others to build up ourselves is called what? It's called self-justification. Number two, the Bible is not a what kind of book. The Bible is not a self-help book. Number three, repentance must be done with what in mind? Repentance must be done with eternity in mind. Number four, Joel is likely speaking to the exiled community, the community of what? which exiles? And the answer is Jews, the exiled Jewish community. Number five, the traditional service for Ash Wednesday is called the commination or denouncing of God's what and judgment against sinners. It's a denouncing of God's anger and judgments against sinners. Number six, explain why, explain why Joel wants to gather the Jews for repentance after judgment has already befallen them. And the answer is because an opportunity to repent is always an opportunity for a second chance. That's good news, my, fr my friends. Good news. Okay, don't, don't. Don't run away from the opportunity to confess and repent of your sins. It's good news. Be glad you have that opportunity. Be glad you're still drawing breath. It's never too late while you still have breath in your, in your mouth. Number seven, we can repent by returning to the Lord with all our what? Hearts. Number eight, who are the hypocrites Jesus is refer referring to? He's referring to Pharisees and the other officials of Jewish religion of his day. Number nine, religion isn't some kind of public display of what? Piety. Religion is not some kind of public display of piety. There may be all kinds of reasons to gather in a church and, and, and put on a show, right? But religion isn't one of them. Don't mistake it. Don't make, your, don't make the mistake that that's true religion. Number 10, Christians are expected to what? We are expected to fast. Number 11, explain why the Christian fast is a fast of joy. The Christian fast is, is, is the effect in time caused by God's judgment in eternity, which leads to vindication and the restoration of justice and righteousness. So that might need a little unpacking there. You might not have picked that up in the sermon. The fast, we, do, we fast now in time, uh, and that's an effect that's caused by something. 
our desire, our, our will to do it is caused by something. And it's caused by something in eternity. The cause of our fasting, the cause of the effect of our fasting is in eternity. And you might be accustomed to thinking of, of eternity as the future. Eternity is not the future. That's time. Time is bound by past, present, and future. When you think of eternity, you need to stop thinking of the temporal. You need to stop thinking of time. So this isn't some question. It's not a case of the cause of our fasting is in the future. No, the cause of our fasting is in eternity, which is another order. It's, it's divine. It's God. God causes us to fast, right? And, and anything God causes us to do, any effect of God in our life, any divine effect in our life, that's something to be welcomed and celebrated, right? So if we're fasting today, it's because God has caused us to fast. He's given us a reason to fast, right? So that's why the Christian fast is a fast of joy, because we receive this effect, the effect of the hunger that we might experience today. We, we receive the effect of this fast as something that is caused by God out of his love for us, and that brings us joy. Number 12, how do we unite our hearts with Christ? And the answer is by saying amen to all of God's promises, which, we, which have found their yes in Jesus Christ. Parents and grandparents, you are responsible to apply God's word to your children's life your children's lives. Here is some help. Number one, count the number of times the word fast was mentioned in the sermon. I think I did a quick search and it was around 18. Uh, that was the written manuscript. I'm sure I said it a lot more during the during the podcast version. And number two, discuss with your parents the relationship between cause and effect. Here's a little uh, chance to introduce some logic exercises, right, with your children. What's the relationship between cause and effect? Ask your children, can we cause or make our friends do something for us? Can we, can we make our friends do something for us? Yes, the answer is yes. Through uh, uh, There's lots of ways to do it. One way is obviously manipulation, but maybe you talk about some of the positive ways uh, that you can make your friends do something for us. But then here's another question. How or can we make or cause God to do anything for us? So what's the difference? Discuss with your children what the difference is between the way we human beings make each other do things uh, and the way God makes us do things. Well, that's my sermon for Ash Wednesday. I wish you all a holy season of Lent, and I'll be with you again soon. God bless.